Hello, it's Wednesday, the 9th of February. I'm Gary Bowerman. On today's show, I'm delighted to be joined by Bali-based Stuart McDonald, founder of Travelfish. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So today, I'm delighted to welcome back to the show, Stuart McDonald. Stuart has spent much of his life living, traveling, and working across Asia, and he's resided in Bali for more than 14 years. He's founder of the independent travel information company, Travelfish. He's a prolific travel journalist and a respected voice on travel and tourism in Southeast Asia. Stuart has recently been interviewed by, amongst others, the New York Times, ABC News in Australia, and Al Jazeera. Stuart joins me today to talk about the last two years, the change and transition in tourism in Bali, Indonesia, and beyond. So Stuart, welcome back to the Southeast Asia Travel Show. How are you doing today, and how's beautiful Bali? Thanks for having me, Gary. Uh, We've got pretty blue skies with a patch of cloud. I've already been down to the beach this morning, and it's relatively clean. And uh, yeah, no complaints, really. Beautiful way to start the day. Now, we're going to talk about the last two years of transition and and disruption in tourism. But let's take a a step back. Let's go back to January 2020, when this whole thing really started to begin. News was starting to filter around the region about the potential health impact of the novel coronavirus, as it was called back then. So what were your thoughts at the time, Stuart? And when was your last trip before the Great Shutdown? Uh, I was in uh, Thailand over the the Christmas New Year period on a holiday, a family holiday, and that was actually where I first heard of COVID, and I didn't really think all that much of it at the time. And then a couple of months later, I was back in Thailand on a research trip through the northeast, and things were starting to ratchet up. And then I was back in KL in late March, I think it was, uh, doing some visa things in, in KL as um, everything started to collapse. So you just managed to get home just before the, the borders closed down? Yeah, I was. Um, we were actually supposed to do an interview while I was there, but we everyone sort of got locked down while, while, while I was there. But I, I ended up, I got my visa, my passport back from the embassy on the last day that they did anything like that for a prolonged period. And the AirAsia flight I got back to Bali was one of the last flights that AirAsia flew to Bali. So, so that really was the, the beginning of, of what was, what has been the great shutdown. So let's move forward a couple of months to April 2020, Stuart. And you came onto the show for the first time. Um, our show had only just begun. It was episode number 13. And during our interview, we talked about many different things, but we did talk about the enveloping COVID situation. And you made the following statement. You said, I think we're looking at least two to two and a half years from today before any kind of substantial recreational tourism will restart. Obviously, I hope I'm wrong. How do you reflect on that two years later, Stuart? Well, what, what do they say? Like a, a broken clock is, is still right twice a day, right? Um, I, I don't think I've ever so much wished I was wrong and I turned out to be not far off the money. I think about a year after that, again on your show, I think I added a year to it. But um, yeah, looking back, 
I, I think I was being perhaps, I, at the time, I felt like I was perhaps being a little bit pessimistic, but it's turned out to be realistic. You know, and that, I said that before vaccinations were even on the, on the table and the vaccinations came on stream a lot faster than most were expecting. Yeah, you posted yesterday on social media about that interview and you said it just seems like a lifetime ago and it really, really does. And when we look back at two years, I mean, so much has happened, so much has changed. Um, but, but from where we're sitting right now, I mean, you, you did nail it. You got it right. Two years was about bang on. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, substantial recreational tourism to Southeast Asia hasn't really begun again yet, I wouldn't say. I mean, okay, to Thailand to a degree. Uh, but not really on any scale. Uh, I think we've still got a ways to go yet. I, I mean, it will depend a little bit on, on how rough this Omicron ride is, how quickly that will dissipate, whether we're going to follow a similar kind of trajectory as, as elsewhere in the world has, uh, or if it's going to linger. Um, and what comes next? Yeah, I don't know. It's certainly not over yet, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely agree. It's not over yet. And we're certainly a long way away from that buy and fly travel culture that we had and which you enjoyed, you know, flying back from KL to Bali just before the, the borders closed. We could literally take our pick of the time we wanted to fly and where we could go to. That doesn't look like it's coming back anytime soon. Uh, but that's a neat segue into let's talk a little bit about what's been happening in Bali, Stuart, because Bali is kind of this global case study in the media um, about tourism's two year decline. You've lived there for many, many years. You travel around the island. You speak to local people all the time. Now, for, what are some of the noticeable impacts that you've seen over the past two years? Well, I mean, there's the obvious stuff, like there's um, a lot of businesses have closed down or cha changed hands, uh, that kind of thing. I mean, it has been very location-specific, so some, some parts of the island have ridden out the pandemic better than others. Like where we live is relatively close to Chenggu and that has has done okay in the scheme of things. But then uh, a month or so ago, we took a, a cheeky weekend to, to a family weekend to Kuta and I took a walk down Poppies One, which used to be, you know, like the hub of South Bali's beach tourism scene. And it was completely deserted. I walked the entire length of it and didn't see another person walking. You know, almost everything was closed, abandoned, graffiti, that kind of thing. It was pretty grim. So, I mean, there's that, that kind of visual evidence of the job losses and financial hardship that uh, people are facing. There's been a move of people um, going back to the, their homes, uh, to the village or to other areas of Indonesia, how many of those people will come back or have the means to come back when, when things improve, whenever that is, uh, is a, a big question. It's been pretty grim, really. I mean, there's, I just recently did a trip to Flores and what was interesting there was that a couple of the people I spoke to who are now involved in what I'd describe as relatively sustainable, small-scale sustainable tourism uh, initiatives were previously based in Bali and they returned to Flores when they lost their work here. And so they've started doing something back there instead on a very, very small scale. So perhaps that will be like a silver lining that some of the people who have been trained up and had exposure to 
large-scale tourism in Bali, having returned home might be in a position to do something there as well. You know, I mean, Indonesia is a fantastic country for traveling in. So there is that sort of possibility. We need the tourists first. Just coming back to the point you made there about Changu, Stuart, you said it's, it's rode out the pandemic slightly better than other places. Is that because it has a lot of long-stay travelers? Uh, it's always been a popular um, spot with like the digital nomad set. There's also plenty of foreigners living there who are not digital nomads, but it's just they, they like living there. Uh, so there's, it's got a fairly resilient population of foreigners. But then so did Legian and so did Kuta. Um, but those areas don't seem to have weathered it as well. Um, so it's a bit bit difficult to fathom. I mean, in other areas of the of the island, like in Chandidasa or Tulamban, Ahmed even, um, it's pretty quiet. But Changu's ridden things out okay. Ubud's pretty quiet. But it's slowly picking up. I mean... There's been like a steady increase in in uh, domestic visitors uh, returning to Bali, and they're sort of been breaking a bit out of the more traditional domestic tourism destinations. So flocking to the cafes and beach bars and stuff in in Ubud, uh, in Changu, sorry. So yeah, there's been a bit of a, a change in scene. And in terms of domestic travel, Stuart, is that kind of a, a constant? Is that most weekends? Is that kind of focused around public holidays? What are the kind of patterns of domestic travel into Bali? Well, it's most noticeable over the like holiday breaks, like Christmas, New Year, for example. It was, I mean, there's a very popular cafe almost opposite where I live and the, the car park was full of number plates from Jakarta and Surabaya and uh, places like that. But yeah, even on weekends, long weekends in particular, and there was like an element of Indonesians who were in a position to be able to work from home and they've relocated to Bali. Uh, I know quite a few people who have done that. They wouldn't ever describe themselves as a digital nomad, but they're certainly able to do their work from home. And well, why do it from Menteng if you can do it in, in Chengdu? So let's talk a little bit about the the official policy of tourism in Bali, because now, we, we read that Bali officially reopened, I think it was last week, for the second time. It was officially reopened, I think, back in October last year, but there were no flights. Now it does seem as though there are some hand-picked, selected flights starting to come in, but they're pretty irregular. But then again, this week, we read about Jakarta announcing that it was closing the airport to international visitors. That was then retracted. So what is actually happening? Okay, the, the Jakarta um, being closed to people on a holiday thing, uh, was retracted pretty quickly. Uh, it was supposedly a typo in a press release, a single word that uh, shouldn't have been there. But by then, the, the news had been picked up by Reuters and it sort of went round the, round the globe and a half. But the official policy is that uh, Jakarta is still open for flights in and out. Uh, people need to do quarantine, so it's five days, five nights, five days. Can't remember which which of those it is actually. I'm sorry. And where previously most foreign tourists have been coming through Jakarta or Manado, that's now going to be possible to come through Bali in, instead. And at the moment, there's only a very select number of hotels that you can quarantine at. 
but that should open up over time once more flights come on stream. There was a story this morning or yesterday saying Singapore Airlines is going to be flying daily from when they start in a couple of weeks and Jetstars just kicked their flights back. But Batik Air is also supposed to start from Singapore. So it looks like it's going to stick. But this is in the midst of the, you know, the biggest increase in numbers we've had ever. Yesterday was Bali's highest day of COVID cases ever. Um, and while the fatality rate so far is far lower than during Delta, it's still very concerning. Bali has a very high level of vaccination uh, by Indonesian standards, but it's also a lot of Sinovac. Um, and there's been a lot of cases of this new variant through the schools. The schools have all been closed and pushed back to remote learning, which is obviously a problem for the kids. Like not everybody has a laptop and a tablet and loads of internet bandwidth. So those kind of things are a challenge. Um, but the government is opening up isolation, uh, centralized isolation facilities again. So it sort of feels like we're back a year ago, sort of reliving the entire process all over again. But this time around, we're opening to international tourism at the same time. So it seems a bit counterintuitive, to be honest. But I think I'm guessing here that the, there would be a sentiment that having opened once and that not really working out to open and then throw it away again wouldn't look great. And so, Stuart, how does the reopening right now work in terms of season? So, for example, Thailand missed probably a large portion of its traditional high season, December and January, because it was closed. It started to reopen again. But Thailand is kind of moving out of peak season. What's the situation in Bali season-wise? Uh, well, our peak season for foreign inbounds is June, July, August, September. That's when all the Europeans come. So we're sort of moving into it. So timing-wise... If the Omicron wave subsides and there's not madness and mayhem, then the timing is actually okay because there's a bit of lead time for hotels to come back on stream and get their staff back in and hose the places out and, and so on and so forth. And is there, you, you speak to a lot of people every day, is, is there a sense of optimism that this time it's really happening, that you know the tourists will come back? I don't know that I'd describe it as optimism. But I'd say people are hopeful. When we arrived in Flores, we were taking the cab from the airport down to the to our hostel. And when the driver found out that we were Australian, he said, oh, wow, you know, you guys can come in now. And I'm like, oh, no, sorry, dude. You know, we live, we live in Bali. You know, we're not foreign tourists. And he was visibly disappointed. But, I mean, the thing is, for people who wanted to come here for all but a few months, they could. There's all this press coverage out of Australia, blah, 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 that Australians can't come here. They couldn't come here because of decisions that were made by the Australian government, not by the Indonesian government. For a long, a lot of the pandemic, people have been able to come into Indonesia. I mean, the process has been tedious and the visas have been expensive, but it has been possible. So, I mean, people have been coming through in business visas through much of this process. But now with this reopening, and this is a, an area of rapid change, but the, they're still requiring the visas to be a more complicated visa that requires the cooperation of either your hotel or an agent to sponsor you. And it still costs a few hundred dollars. 
So, I mean, once you're fact, if you're coming here, looking at coming here with a family of four and you're going to have to quarantine for five days, it's a fair chunk of change before you even hit the ground. Yeah, I think there's still got a ways to go before we see anything like um, loads of tourists piling in. I mean, there's, there's certainly a segment of people who are itching to get back here and they will come back as soon as they feel that it's safe for them and it's safe for the Balinese. But I think for a lot of other people, the majority, there'll be a pregnant pause. People will wait to see how things shake out. When they reopen, will there be an explosion in cases? You know, there's still a lot of uncertainty. People look at what's happened in Thailand and the flip-flopping on rules. And I mean, at one stage there, it was changing so often it was impossible to keep up with. Yeah, I think there's still a bit of caution. Yeah, well, there's the two sides there. I mean, that's a really good point. There's the, the potential hospitalization or quarantine while, while you're traveling, not being able to get back to your home country. And then something I've been doing a bit of research into recently is the, the insurance requirements, which are still very, very nebulous at the moment. Very. Um, I was actually looking at the policies of one travel insurer uh, just the other day. And while they, strictly speaking, qualified for what the government was demanding as um, level of insurance cover that you require, uh, what they were actually offering, if you were to come here and then get sick and be quarantined, I mean, you still would have ended up thousands and thousands of dollars out of pocket. I mean, I'm always telling people to read the small print on travel insurance. I mean, even before the pandemic, but never more so than now. Uh, You really need to read it line by line because, um, like, say, for instance, if you arrive and then you catch COVID in quarantine and then you're carted off to some other hospital for a prolonged quarantine until you test negative, because you haven't been able to pick that hospital or it hasn't been approved by your insurer, they're just as likely to refuse to pay. So it's high risk. Yeah, I totally agree. I must admit, I've scared myself a little bit digging into some, some of the, the, the deeper elements of insurance in the last couple of weeks. But let's move on, Stuart. You, you uh, inferred there that you've been traveling beyond Bali around, uh, around Indonesia. You went to the Flores region. Um, tell us a little bit more about what you discovered there and rediscovered. H- had you been to that region before? Uh, yeah, I had. I, I'm a big, big rap on Flores, but I, I hadn't actually been there for years. And it was the, the first time that I got on a plane since since all of this started. So it's a beautiful island. It's home to uh, Komodo National Marine Park. And um, I went with my son and we just sort of hung out. You know, Labuan Bajo has been one of the destinations that the Indonesian government has pegged as being a super premium destination with this chasing of high value tourists. Um, so they've poured a, a ton of dosh into the place, sort of sprucing it up. But we we went diving, we went snorkeling, we did a overnight trip to Werebo, which is a traditional village up in the hills at the end of a god-awful road. So yeah, we were there for 12 days all up and it was it was great. I mean it was it was interesting seeing there because the Labuanbajo only like I don't know, like two or three decades ago, it was a glorified fishing village. And now it's like one of the, or used to be one of the premier diving sites in, in the country. And I talked to a number of dive shops while I was there. And um, I mean, they've been facing very, very challenging times because so much of the business is focused on foreigners coming in to dive. 
So it's been very, very challenging. So let's touch on Commodore. You mentioned that the national park there. We've read a lot about some of the developments that are occurring there. What was, what was your impressions about what's happening, Stuart? Uh, well, we didn't actually go onto the land portion of the park. We, we went diving within the park boundaries. And uh, I believe there were only two other boats in the entire park on the day that we were there. So, I mean, completely selfishly, it was a fabulous time to visit because you certainly not worried about anybody else's bubbles. But there is like some substantial changes on the way with the park. They've closed Rincher, which is one of the two main islands uh, within the park boundaries, and they're building a... Oh, I don't know how you'd describe it. Uh, it's, it's like a um, an enclosure where tourists can view the Komodo dragons. But at the moment, that's closed and it's completely off limits to foreigners, believe me. So you can go and visit Komodo instead. And the funny thing is, that while we were there, we met these two backpackers, two Bulgarians, who were just on a backpacking holiday. It was really interesting. But they did a trip to Komodo and saw the dragons and they saw them fighting over a deer carcass which is extremely rare and they thought it was the best thing since sliced bread but there are there are some very controversial changes uh, in the winds around komodo that if everything comes to fruition that is being talked about it could well endanger, endanger the unesco listing so it's something to watch closely and hope that some better minds are brought to bear on on some of the things that are planned for there. It's difficult to say anything more because pretty much everybody you talk to says something different and the National Park Authority and the government hasn't exactly been transparent about what is going on there. It's very concerning considering it's one of the top diving sites in the country and it's a fantastic national park, to have these sort of suggested changes going on with close to no transparency, uh, it's extremely concerning and problematic. You mentioned two points there which really show the dichotomy of travel and tourism as we move into this new era. You referenced there this high-quality debate about uh, investment-based tourism. You also mentioned that you met a couple of backpackers there. And this sort of quality versus mass tourism debate has, has really taken hold where there hasn't been much travel. So let's look a little bit at what your thoughts are of the future of budget travel in Southeast Asia, because Australia and New Zealand are both preparing to reopen their borders. They are both actively encouraging backpackers and working holiday travellers to return. But here in Southeast Asia, the political debate has taken a much different turn, hasn't it? It's, there's much more of this focus on whatever it means, as you said, this high spending tourism. Is that posturing or is that actual policy? I, I think the administration would love to have high spending tourists coming here and spending money hand over fist. But they've been talking about it here since the 70s. So, you know, it's one thing to talk about it. It's something else to create an environment that facilitates it. And the thing is that when you look at the development that is happening in Labuan Bajo, much of the money and much of the development, well, it's going to benefit local people in that they might get a job making beds or something like that. But a lot of this money is offshore. Well, perhaps not from overseas, but certainly from elsewhere in Indonesia. And when they talk about this being a new sustainable destination, 
and sustainable tourism and sustainable this and sustainable that. It's like sustainable for who, you know? Um, so I think it's not ideal. Like, you know, I'm a, a big advocate of budget travel. I think that backpackers, I mean, they're not all great, you know, um, but they tend to travel further. They tend to stay in locally owned or locally managed businesses and their money, while they might not spend as much day by day, if you let them, if your visa is long enough, uh, then they'll certainly spend for a lot more days. These Bulgarians, they were planning on being here for three months and they'd done quarantine in Jakarta. They traveled across Java and they were in Flores and they had plans to go up to, um, to Kalimantan, Sulawesi. So, I mean, they were getting around. I just struggle to understand how that's a bad thing because not everybody wants a horizon pool. These guys are staying in the same place as I was. It was like 200,000 rupiah a night with a share bathroom, you know. It was no great shakes, but it was a good, fun place. So, yeah, it's difficult to see. And like when, when they talk about high-value tourism, they need to have a conversation about how much that money actually stays in the country. I saw a, an interview with somebody from Badung in, in Bali, uh, tourism, uh, from before the pandemic. This is an official guy, not, not just some random dude on the street. And he said that 60% of the money that foreign tourists spend in Bali doesn't stay here. So only 40% of the money stays on the island. And when you look around at the, the damage, environmental and otherwise, that uh, some of the overdevelopment has done, and so it's the same in Labuan Bajo where you're seeing these big glitzy hotels, the government owned or owned by entrepreneurs. I mean, one place I looked at, I mean, it was very impressive and it's 18 million rupiah a night, but that's a Jakarta owned business. And how much of that money is going to stay in Flores? When you're going to start bandying around sustainability, you need to have a, a good, honest look at sustainable for whom and just how sustainable a business really is. And I think that locally owned small businesses catering to budget travelers tend to be far more often locally owned and keeping the money in that location than some fancy horizon pool place that looks like it's just been dropped in from Santorini. Another beautiful segue, Stuart, into our next point, because one of the changes personally for you uh, during the, the past two years is that you've gone back to university. Since September last year, you've been studying for an MSc in Responsible Tourism Management with Leeds Beckett University in the UK. So a couple of questions from that, I guess. Firstly, what prompted the decision? And secondly, how's it going? A few things. I had some time on my hands. Then I, it was sort of like a bit of a, a whim, I guess. And I started looking around and I asked some of my peers, people I respect, what they thought. And then the closer I looked, the more I thought, yeah, this would actually be a pretty interesting thing to do. And what I found is that um, it has given me the tools to better explain how I already feel about things. I can be quite outspoken and speak my mind, but often it's more convincing if you're able to do that from a more educated base rather than just saying that's a really stupid thing, you know. Uh, so I found it uh, very helpful. I, I don't know what I'll actually do with it, 
but it's certainly formalizing some and building upon, obviously, uh, some areas that are of particular interest to me. I mean, living through the growth of, growth of tourism in, in this region since the 1990s, how could you not be concerned about responsibility and sustainability? So taking it from a more academic point of view has been, yeah, super interesting and super helpful. And I mean, the thing is that like every week when we're working through some project and it's like I can look out my window and there's examples of things that are not responsible and not sustainable. So I'm certainly spoilt for choice on subject matter. In terms of that, Stuart, you, um, because you're doing it with a UK university, are the case studies and the research that you're doing, is that globally focused or is it mostly Asia Pacific? Uh, it's global. In the last couple of weeks, I've been reading about elephant projects in Botswana, uh, national parks in New Zealand, walking trails in Ireland. Uh, Indonesia does often feature, uh, and surprisingly, often for things that are being done really well, which, which I have to admit surprised me. Uh, so yeah, it is a, a global focus, and the student body, quite a few of the people are in the UK, but uh, another of my colleagues is in uh, Canada, and another one's in Rwanda. So it's a good a good spread of expertise and cultural backgrounds. So it's, yeah, super interesting. I'm really enjoying it. I just need more time. Uh, there's too much to read. So Stuart, having been back on the road recently in Indonesia for the first time in some while, has this enticed you to, to travel more frequently again? And will you be traveling overseas anytime soon? Uh, I won't be traveling overseas anytime soon, no. Traveling domestically, uh, like I said earlier, it, this was the first time I've been on a flight since all of this had, has started. And I mean, the flight was fine, but I'm not itching to get back on a plane. Uh, the plane was very full. And it's also just the tedium of having to do a test here and test there. And the test has got to be 24 hours before and, and all of that kind of messing around. Um, I would have preferred to go there by motorbike, but my, my son sort of said, no, he wasn't interested in that. But I think next time, because this trip we had actually planned on going to Sumbawa to see the whale sharks, but we were just a little bit too early. And Sumbawa is one island closer. So I think if we were to go, which would be in about three or four weeks' time, we'll go by motorbike, uh, which I'd be happier to do with because you're just a little bit further away from other people and that kind of stuff. But aside from the inconvenience of flying, it was great. I mean, it was great to be back into hanging out in guest houses and talking to people that you don't know and hearing people's stories and, and that kind of stuff was super interesting. Um, when we visited Werebo, uh, the village leaders there were super generous with their time and sat with me for about 30, 40 minutes talking about the whole history of the village. And I don't know that in back in the old days, I would have got that same access nor that time. So in a way, it's a great time to travel and you are uh, supporting people who really could do with the money and the business. So yeah, we'll try and do a bit more, but I'm not keen about getting back on an aeroplane again. Yeah, that's a great summary, Stuart. Once again, as always, thank you very much for your time and your insights. And thanks very much for keeping us up to date on what's happening in Indonesia and Bali. Hopefully we'll, we'll talk again soon in the coming months. Oh, my pleasure, Gary. No problems. So that brings us to the end of today's show. Please send us your thoughts and your comments 
on anything that I discussed with Stuart or anything that we missed out, drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Meanwhile, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, www.theseasiatravelshow.com. And of course, you can listen to every episode, including this one where I spoke to Stuart, on all the various international podcast platforms. Just search for the Southeast Asia Travel Show on each one. So that's a wrap for today, but Hannah and I will be back next week with another special guest for part three of our two years of travel disruption series. We look forward to seeing you there. 